I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And more than one in three Americans, roughly 38%, are having difficulty meeting their basic needs each month. You may be one of them, or be only a few paychecks away from becoming one. Or perhaps you know someone who is, or you don't, because they're hiding it from you. Regardless, the number remains. 123 million people. Our two guests this week believe it doesn't have to be this way, and they've written a book to prove their case. Joanne Samuel Goldblum is founder and CEO of the National Diaper Bank Network, encompassing more than 200 member organizations that provide diapers and other basic needs to families across America. In 2018, she founded the Alliance for Period Supplies, which provides free hygiene products to the one in four people for whom menstruation means difficulty attending school and work. Joanne has spent her career working with and advocating for families in poverty. She has written op-eds for Washington Post, U.S. News & World Report, and Huffington Post. Colleen Shaddix is a print and radio journalist and activist. Her publication credits include New York Times, The Washington Post, National Public Radio, and many more. In states throughout the country, Colleen has worked on winning campaigns to get kids out of adult prisons, to end juvenile life without parole, and to limit shackling in juvenile courts. She is a frequently anthologized fiction writer, and her award-winning play, The Shakespeare's, and other dramatic works have been performed around the country. Joanne, Colleen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Joanne, on the National Diaper Bank Network's website, in big, bold letters, there is a declaration, quote, we exist to reveal the truth about diaper need, end quote. So what is that truth, and why did it lead you to found the organization? Thank you for that question. It's it's actually really interesting. The truth is that one in three American moms, parents, struggle with the issue of diaper need, which means that they don't have an adequate supply of clean diapers. The thing that is the most important to understand, people are sometimes shocked by that statistic, but they shouldn't be because, you know, over 40% of our children are poor or low income. So, you know, it's really not a surprise that diapers are an issue for families. You know, I started the New Haven Diaper Bank. It was called the New Haven Diaper Bank in 2004. It's now the Diaper Bank of Connecticut. And I started that as a result of the work that I was doing. I'm a social worker and I was doing community-based social work, which meant I went to people's houses or met them in the community where they were. And what I saw over and over again was a level of poverty that even as somebody who thought that they understood poverty in the United States, what I saw was shocking. In Connecticut, a cold state, there were people in the winter who didn't have heat and hot water. You know, I would see over and over again families who didn't have their material basic needs met. And there was a particular family that I worked with, and I saw the mom empty the solids out of diapers and put them back on her children. I was being sent there to support the family and in part to support with parenting skills. And I realized that the system we have set up, you know, I can't teach someone to diaper their child if they don't have a clean diaper. And the way that we have structured our social safety net, sort of such as it is, 
doesn't provide for the most basic things that people need. And so I've really begun to focus on, or I began to focus on, you know, making sure that everyone in the U.S. has their material basic needs met. And this is going to be a recurring theme throughout our discussion, so thank you for sharing that. Colleen, you left daily newspapers when an editor reprimanded you for, quote, writing too many stories about poor people, end quote, and you went to work in a soup kitchen. What did you learn in your time there, and how did you bring that experience to this book? I learned that people are complex. I suppose I already knew that to some extent from the work that I was doing, but there are sort of set narratives about people in poverty in this country. You're ignorant or lazy or, you know, you have some kind of deficiency or you will work really hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And all of our systems for dealing with poverty in this country are really based on that idea that it's the person who needs fixing, that something is deficient with them. But, you know, I met people with PhDs working in a soup kitchen. I met people who had had a lot of opportunities and people who hadn't had any. There wasn't a common denominator. And this is true in the soup kitchen. And, you know, in the three years that Joanne and I spent interviewing people in poverty all across this country, the common denominator is that they don't have money. And anti-poverty programs generally try to fix people. When it's a resource problem, you know, people need money and there's lots of ways to do that. You can do that through raising the minimum wage. You can do that through things like UBI. We were doing it for a while very successfully through the refundable child tax credit, but we get it exactly wrong when we address poverty in this country. Why do we seem to focus so much on the individual and their quote unquote deficiencies? rather than seeing the problem of poverty as a structural issue, Colleen? Well, if you see it as a structural issue, your life might have to change, right? It's very easy to say, hey, this guy needs to get up earlier in the morning. He needs more education. He needs this. He needs that. But when you look at the structure of our country, how our economy is run, inequality has really grown and grown and grown. You know, when I was a child, there was a 90% marginal tax rate. There were rich people in this country, but they did a better job of paying their fair share so that water systems worked and public education was more readily available to people and all kinds of things like that. We've stepped away from that. We've got a minimum wage that has been flat for a quarter of a century, while the cost of living has gone up more than 100%. So it's no surprise that poverty is a growing problem in this country. Fixing that requires a top to bottom change in how we do things. And it's a lot easier to just say, well, he's homeless because he takes drugs. We're going to first build the foundation of exactly how much is wrong and how much despair and tragedy there is in the United States over the course of the next hour, and then loop back to what some potential solutions might be in order to get out from under this. Broken America, the book that the two of you co-wrote together, 
and it feels weird to say this, to to call it a great read, (laughs) because it is, but the enormity of the tragedy contained within its pages is at times overwhelming, to say the, the very least. And what I'm about to say is a reflection of my relative level of privilege, but I earnestly had to take breaks while reading it because the sheer scale of pain and destitution cataloged in the book that is happening in my country, in our country, was simply too much to take for extended periods of time. The task that was in front of the two of you to to catalog all of this tragedy, step by step, personal anecdote by personal anecdote, stat after stat, really just comes together to paint a, a truly horrific picture of what is happening in the wealthiest nation on earth. So originally my plan was to go over chapters two through six with the two of you, which is water, food, housing, power, and transportation. You go step-by-step in these chapters, breaking down the inefficiencies and the problems with each of these systems within the United States. And these chapters in my copy of the book are so marked up at this point that they're almost illegible. But the book is so chock full of information that I realized that this interview, as I mentioned before we started recording, would need to be either six hours long, or I'd have to respect your time and cut back on my questions. We're mostly going to focus on chapters two and three today, which is water and food. And there is enough information within these two chapters to honestly make an entire book in and of itself. So I encourage anyone who enjoys this episode to pick up Broken America and read more because we are just scratching the surface here. So I want to start with the introduction in the book. Quote, when people don't have the necessities of life, poverty becomes quicksand, end quote. And this is such an evocative and succinct statement And we'll begin to illustrate this in the coming hour. But to start us off, Joanne, can you elaborate on what that means, poverty becoming quicksand? You know, it's interesting because to hear you talk about your response to the book is, well, I'm sorry, you know, sorry that it it is sort of depressing, but it is incredibly gratifying that you were able to see so much that is changeable in our country. So the idea of poverty being quicksand is that when you are experiencing poverty, it's very hard to get out of it. You know, one of the ways that I describe it is as a, a person of means, every time you spend, you know, $2, $5, $10-on some convenience, paying your parking ticket online, registering your child for school, you know, something that you use the convenience fee. You're buying your way out of a problem. And if somebody doesn't have access to that, it means they have to do something more. So for example, if you work a job that has paid time off, you're able to take time during the day to take your child to the doctor or to register you know, for a summer program. If you're working an hourly job and you can't take that time off, if you have to decide between taking time off or doing this thing that needs to be done, it's an untenable situation. And so what happens is many families, many parents, many people decide that they have to work. And then they aren't able to do these other things. So that's one part of it. Another part of it is that it is very expensive to be poor. One of the really fascinating things about the U.S. economy 
is that the more money you have, the less things cost. You need to pay to be able to go to the big box stores, right? You pay a membership fee, you need a credit card to pay, you need transportation to get home, and you need to have enough money to lay out more money to buy those products for less. And if any one of those things is not possible, you're going to be shopping at smaller stores, buying smaller packages, and paying more per piece. So when you think about diapers, right, which I talk about all the time, if you buy them at a big box store, you know, BJ's or Price Club, you know, one of those, you can buy the diaper for close to half of what you would pay if you bought your diaper at a convenience store or a corner market. It's sort of backwards. And so each time that somebody who doesn't have enough money needs to find a way to change something, if they don't have the cash to be able to pay for it, it becomes very, very complicated and you just go further and further into it. In the book, we told of the variety, as you said, a variety of stories, but many of them had to do, or some of them had to do with, for example, parents having to use their child's social security number to get heat or hot water or one of the utilities because they weren't able to back pay what they had had from the year before. And what that means is that that child is going out into the world with credit that is already damaged. And, you know, people can say that parent shouldn't have done that. But what Colleen and I really wanted to to help people to see was that that parent didn't have a choice because you need electricity and heat and hot water. And so it's just a never-ending cycle. And one thing that became very clear to me as I was reading was it seems like in the last 10 or so years, especially if you live in an urban center like I do here in Los Angeles, that the gap of understanding between what it means to be in poverty and what it means to be of means, let's say, is widening because for the first time, I think, in all of history, many people, myself included, who are not ultra wealthy, I'm, you know, about middle class, I suppose I'd say, more people than ever are able to do something that was once only available to people who were ultra, ultra wealthy. And that is to buy time, like the apps that we use on our phones. During the pandemic, especially, I think this became very clear, where because of fear of getting the coronavirus, many people who could afford to do it had their groceries delivered, had meals delivered, had basically anything they could possibly ever need, diapers, food, all essentials, toiletries, et cetera, they could have them delivered right to their homes. And of course, that's a great convenience, especially when you're trying to avoid getting sick. But beyond that, what it highlights and what is so plain as day reading this book is that one of the things that really adds up over time when you're experiencing poverty is just how much damn time it takes to do everything. Like when you can't afford to get your food delivered to you, your groceries delivered or your toiletries delivered because it's $3 here, $5 there, a $6 convenience fee for Instacart, et cetera which when you're of means, it's a bit of a cost, but you can absorb it. But that's dozens of hours of time over the course of a month or several months. 
that you're saving that you can then use to do other things like take care of your kids, work, etc. And one of the things that just kept getting hammered into me over the course of this book was just how much time it takes to do all of these things. And this is something that only until recently, middle class and above families had to do as well. If you needed groceries, you had to drive to go get those groceries. And so I worry that there's this divide of understanding between people who can afford to basically buy time and those who can't. Is that something you're seeing as well, Colleen? Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. It takes a lot of time to be poor. You know, the transportation isn't particularly good in your neighborhood. So to get where you're going, maybe you have to take two or three buses. You know, you can't do anything convenient, like you said, an app. One of the saddest stories in the book to me was we were looking at a nutrition program. This was kids who had uh, middle school girls who had flunked phys ed. So they went to this summer program where they did some exercises, but mostly what they did was they looked at their food environment and they took pictures of their neighborhoods and, you know, you could see that there weren't supermarkets nearby. There were corner stores and there was fast food and more fast food. And they really understood that they were being put in an environment where healthy food wasn't available. And I said to them after they'd presented all their work, do any of you still eat fast food? And they all did. And one girl told me that she ate fast food every single day. And I said, well, tell me about that, given everything that you just said. And she explained that her mom and dad were both certified nursing assistants. So they had to work double shifts to pay the rent because the wage was so low. Also, their car at the time was broken. So they had their grandmother's car, but they had to go to the next town to take her to work, then drop the kids off at camp, then go to work themselves. So every day when it was time to pick up the kids at three o'clock, they would do that. They would go through a drive through for dinner, leave the kids home to eat junk food and do their homework and go back and work more. That's a terrible choice, right? But what other choice was available to them? They didn't have the hours in a day to make a wholesome meal for the kids. They were doing the absolute best that they could. When you look at the guidelines for SNAP, which is what we used to call food stamps, it assumes that people spend many more hours cooking every week than the average American does. And that means that there's no room for things like carrots that are already peeled for bone chicken breasts and you know all the things that I might use during the week to get a good meal on for my family when I'm a little rushed for time. Everything is harder when you're poor. And the assumption is always that you need to be taught to do it better. You know, these girls pretty easily got the idea that a Big Mac was not health food, but their parents didn't have the time or the money to do something different. There seem to be two recurring, well, there are many recurring themes, but the two that you touched on here, one was going back to what you were saying about the SNAP benefits, is that a lot of federal guidelines seem to be decades out of date. They're reflecting a society which no longer exists, and yet the guidelines that were set decades ago are still affecting the lives of tens of millions of people today. 
let's take, for instance, the federal poverty guidelines, which were set in 1963 and how out of whack they are. In the book, you write, quote, the federal poverty guidelines are set annually by the Department of Health and Human Services and used to determine eligibility for benefits. In 2020, a family of three was considered in poverty with an income below $21,720, end quote. As I've said, I'm a single guy with no kids. I just have a dog. He's great, but he's no kid. I can't survive on $21,720 a year here in Los Angeles if I want to live by myself. I think that the two of you provide a very good counter definition, which is, quote, poverty is when a person cannot afford to meet basic needs, end quote. So, Joanne, what has the Center for Women's Welfare calculated as the self-sufficiency standard? And why is this a more accurate representation of what a family needs to survive? Sure. So the self-sufficiency standard is actually fascinating and something that, you know, I think Colleen and I really wish and hope that the U.S. government will begin to use. It looks at what it actually costs to live, and it looks at community to community, state to state. And so it shows that it costs different things to live different places, right? So the U.S. poverty guidelines are the same across the country, except for Alaska and Hawaii. And we know that what it costs to live, say, where you are in Los Angeles is considerably more than it costs to live in many other areas of the country. So the self-sufficiency standard looks at that. And it also realistically includes all of the things that people have to pay for. The federal poverty level, when it was created, looked at the cost of food in the 1960s. They extrapolated that people spent at that time a third of their income on food. So they took that number of how much food cost, multiplied it by three, and that was where the federal poverty guidelines came from, basically. And so the self-sufficiency standard looks at things like the cost of housing, the cost of transportation, the cost of clothing, the cost of basic needs, these things that have had considerable increase over the years. While there's not one number that's the answer, basically everyone agrees, including the people who run the government programs, that it costs about twice the federal poverty level, that there's not really anywhere in the United States where you can live for less than twice the federal poverty level and meet all your basic needs and not need any kind of subsidy. It's shown in the way that many of our programs are administered. So there are a number of safety net programs in the United States where you can make up to um, 180% of poverty, 150% of poverty, 200% of poverty, because they know that the number's just too low. I'm repeatedly at a loss for words when talking about the subjects of this book, because I feel like the average person before reading this book, if they're anything like me, would probably in their head define poverty as not being able to meet their basic needs. And basic needs, as you've laid out, they're usually defined as things like housing, food, utilities, healthcare, you know, the things that a person living in a modern society needs to actually live 
But that's not what poverty is defined as. So the U.S. Census Bureau estimates that nearly 12% of Americans are living in poverty. That's about 38 million people. That's a lot of people. But if we go by what I think is the more accurate standard, which is a difficulty to meet basic needs, as the both of you outline in this book, this number skyrockets to 38% of Americans. That's 123 million people. So we could linger here on why our media and so many journalists have, whether intentionally or not, inaccurately represented the sheer scale of Americans, one out of three Americans who are living in in what any sane person would define as poverty, unable to meet their housing, food, utility, and healthcare needs. But I really want to get to water because I think that chapter two is, is really, <laughs> it's a lot. From chapter two, Joanne and Colleen, you write, quote, one in 10 American households cannot afford their water bill, according to a 2017 University of Michigan study, whose authors predict that the rate will increase to one in three within the next five years unless action is taken. Again, that's one in three American households. So while there are federal programs, albeit underfunded ones, to help people in poverty get food, housing, medical care, and heat, there is no national program to assist with water. The Environmental Protection Agency, otherwise known as the EPA, found that seven out of 10 water utilities offer no assistance to low-income customers, end quote. So, Colleen, this is going to be a reoccurring question and sort of a theme today. Pardon my bluntness, but why? Why is this? It, 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 it blows my mind because we all know that a person without water will die within a week. So why is it the one area in which there's no government assistance? So I'm going to answer that two ways. One way is we do not recognize these sorts of things as rights. You know, the United Nations will come over, and they have come over and looked at water situations in this country and released statements calling on our government to do more, saying that this is a violation of people's human rights. We don't see anything as a human right in this country, from diapers to food to water to a place to sleep at night. It's not unacceptable to us that people do without. Now, the less philosophical answer that I have is that our infrastructure was largely built at the end of the Second World War, and it's time to rebuild it. It's past time to rebuild it. But instead of keeping up with infrastructure, what we've done is given tax cuts to the wealthiest among us. And we have let systems deteriorate and deteriorate. And a couple of things can happen when that is the case. You get a flint, and there are flints all over the country where the system has really crashed and is now unhealthy for people and untenable for people. Or another thing that you can get is the water authority, which is usually public, gets resources to fix itself in the only way that it sees possible, which is going after ratepayers and raising rates. And you get water rates going up so dramatically that they become impossible for people to pay. We saw that very much in Detroit and Baltimore. And in both cases, it was really Black neighborhoods that were targeted. It was Black neighborhoods where people got shutoffs and had to leave their houses. And people felt that they were being pushed out 
in the name of gentrification. And it was hard to argue that they were wrong. Yes. The the story of how common a situation like Flint is, uh, weird to call it a highlight, but a highlight of this book, you quote a 2016 report by the Natural Resources Defense Council, which stated that 5,300 water systems, which serve more than 18 million people in the United States, were in violation of the EPA's lead and copper rules, end quote. Now, Colleen, you mentioned how a lot of this is simply because we just haven't updated these systems in decades, but this isn't inevitable. It's not a force of nature. It's not gravity, like the two of you state in the introduction to this book. So to put a bit of a silver lining on this, you do offer the story of Lansing, Michigan, which is only about 50 miles from Flint and roughly the same size. Also affected by the auto industry, not doing its best right now, but... What are they doing right? They decided to proactively start replacing old lead pipes. They did it over 10 years. They bonded it. Rates did not go up any more than rates throughout the rest of the state, but they have a clean and healthy water system because they invested in the common good. So I guess my follow-up question, and Joanne, if you want to take this one, why aren't Lansing's more common? You know, we use bonds here in, in California all the time. It's a fairly common thing. That way you don't hit taxpayers with too much of a cost in a short period of time. Why can't we get out from under this as a nation? Why can't we just do exactly what Lansing did and update our water structure? What is preventing cities from doing this? It seems like a fairly common sense solution. These cities are run by politicians that I imagine are competent and understand how to run a city. So what's preventing them from doing what Lansing did? So I think the first answer is we could do it. It's not that we can't. It is that we choose not to. And it really goes back to sort of the thesis of our book, which is that in the U.S., we blame people for problems. We don't look to the society to solve those problems. You know, for example, one of the stories in the book is about a man in Baltimore who had his water turned off. And there were a variety of other things. Fred Lee. Yes. And it was a faulty water meter that caused him to have a lien placed on his house. But we as a society believe or support the corporation over the person. And so, you know, I think that politicians are so scared of raising taxes and so committed to being strong on business and being seen as not making it too easy for people. And it goes back to, you know, what Colleen said earlier, most of the communities that have significant issues with water are communities of color and they're poor communities. And so they are communities that tend to have less political capital. And I think that that is really the crux of why these things don't get fixed. Let's stay for a moment in Baltimore, because as you mentioned, you know, Baltimore is a city that is majority people of color, I think almost entirely run by people of color as well, who are elected officials. You make the case that obviously systemic racism and structural inequities go hand in hand. I think anyone who has a basic understanding of American history can connect those dots, hopefully. 
but it seems that plus more because in Baltimore City, you write, quote, water is shut off when customers are $250 past due and a $750 balance earns property owners a lien and places them in jeopardy of losing their home to a tax sale, end quote. You talk about the story of Fred Lee, who is hit with a $6,000 bill because of something completely beyond his control, which is actually the city's fault, which is his faulty water pipes. My recurring question here is it seems no matter who is elected, either what their ethnic or racial background is, what party they seem to belong to, I, I think the, the frustrating thing, and you can probably hear it in my voice as I stutter my way through this question, is it, it just seems so clear what the answer is. And it doesn't seem like anyone who's elected into office just grabs the brass ring. And I'm struggling to figure out why. You know, <laughs> I too struggle to understand that. You know, I, I think that I think that there's just so much to it. And there are not many elected officials whose primary focus is ending poverty. You know, one thing is that I think people get elected and there are so many things that they have to deal with. And because of sort of the way that that structure exists, it's easy to put these things off because the person before them put it off and the person before them did too. And there was no um, major uprising from that. I think honestly, it has to do with what, you know, Colleen spoke about at the beginning, this uniquely American view that individuals have to solve their own problems and that capitalism, aggressive capitalism is what is best for all of us. And, and I think it really is going to require us electing I guess I'm not really sure how to say this, but I'll say it. You know, younger people, people who have different ideas, and enough of them that they're able to make change. I would add one more thing, too. It needs to get put on the agenda. And the way that happens is what we're doing right now, talking about it publicly. My boss was an idiot who told me that I couldn't write about poverty issues. But he wasn't that unusual, right? 40% of Americans can't meet their basic needs. Why isn't poverty a beat on every major news organization? We don't really delve into it. This book was a lot of research. It was hard to write on all sorts of levels, but we weren't doing investigative work. We referred to reports and documents that were publicly available. We went and talked to people in communities that were right there for the whole world to see. I don't think a light is shown on poverty. And I often talk about it like climate change. 15 years ago, there was not a massive recognition that this was a problem, this was a man-made problem, and we had to address it urgently. That took time, that took movement building, and we need that for poverty. We need the same kind of process for poverty. We need to first open people's eyes and second, convince them that this is not the way it has to be. We can take practical actions to make things better. This chapter, the water chapter, 
was the chapter that shocked both Colleen and I. You know, people always ask us that was anything surprising. You know, most of the other chapters, they weren't surprising. They were sad and there were all sorts of things. But water, it was surprising to us just how widespread the problem was. And to circle back to something you said, Colleen, about how it took some time for people to really come around and understand the urgency of addressing climate change, right? It's a good example, but I actually don't think it goes far enough as a comparison because to play a minor devil's advocate here, at least with climate change, you could say, well, it's a bit abstract. We're talking about something that is going to be happening in the future. It's kind of a heady thing. You're like, okay, well, if I do this and there's a butterfly effect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. With this, with water, food, housing, poverty, it's not some abstract thing that's going to happen in 10, 20, 30 years. Oh, if we don't act now, your grandchildren's grandchildren might not have water to drink. We're talking about something that is literally physically happening to people right now. I want to draw a connection that the two of you make in this chapter. We talked about Fred Lee from Baltimore City, who was hit with a $6,000 water bill because of faulty water pipes, right? $6,000. I want people to remember that number. I want to draw people's attention to this other number. You talk about Nestle and Midtown Detroit, quote, though many taps are dry in Midtown Detroit, the region does not lack for water. In fact, Nestle has large water bottling operations in the Great Lakes, drawing on the same natural water systems that feed Detroit. Nestle paid a $5,000 one-time application fee to begin operations as well as an annual $200 permit for the groundwater well it operates in Michigan, but there is no meter running. The company draws water for free now and sells it to consumers by the bottle, end quote. There is a Orwellian Kafka-esque irony in the fact that someone like Fred Lee, who you note in the book, now spends about $20 a week on bottled water to drink and wash himself because he can't afford a $6,000 erroneous water bill, where Nestle pays $5,000 one time and then is able to bottle as much water as it wants for free forever to then sell to people like Fred Lee who can't afford their water bills. <laughs> I don't really have a question there, but I just I wanted to put it on the record because it's insane. What I wanted to say through all of that was the reason that even though it's in your face that we don't respond to it is because in the US, and I do think this is uniquely American, but I don't know, we other people incredibly successfully. You know, you've said you live in LA, big cities all over the country have, you know, huge issues with homelessness. Yet we walk right past it. All of us do. It's in our face and we choose to ignore it. And, you know, I think that it's a much, much bigger issue than most of us are really willing to talk about. If it's not happening to us as Americans, we tend to be pretty comfortable sort of putting it out of our minds. And I don't know what the answer is to that, but that is a lot of what we saw. And we definitely saw time and again that people identify up. Mm-hmm on economic issues, right? As a middle-class person, I have far more in common with someone living on Skid Row than I do with Elon Musk. My interests are far more aligned with people on Skid Row. 
but no one wants to think of themselves in that way. We talk about the estate tax in the book. The estate tax kicks in on estates in excess of $3 million. I don't care. That's never going to affect me. But many, many people who will never be affected by the estate tax are against it, want it to be repealed because, you know, that's not fair. That's my money. We have so shamed poverty that people don't want to identify with their fellow humans in poverty. They would much rather identify with billionaires in space whose life has absolutely nothing to do with me and whose economic interests have nothing to do with me. As John Steinbeck once said, socialism never took root in America because the poor see themselves not as exploited proletariat, but as temporarily inconvenienced millionaires. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it seems like a fundamental shift in how we think about ourselves and our neighbors. I think that there's a, a good way to get from water to food here. It's the intersection of lead in our water and iron deficiency among the impoverished. So there were a couple things here that shocked me, recurring theme, Michael is shocked. Lead was legal to use in constructing water systems until 1986, that's four years after I was born. And the Environmental Defense Fund estimates that between six and 10 million American homes have drinking water supplied through lead pipes. Colleen, I'll turn this one to you. What are we doing, if anything, about retrofitting our lead pipes? And in what ways, and this is devastating, what ways are lead pipes affecting especially children? And how is that not just a detriment to them as individuals, but also just a huge cost to our nation as a whole? Lead is bad for brain development. And we want every kid in the United States to have optimal brain development so that they can go on and thrive and be the people that they were made to be. Pew Charitable Trust did a study a cost-benefit analysis looking at replacing lead pipes in the U.S., and I can't remember the exact number, but it pays off many times over because you need less special ed. You need less of a criminal legal system. People do better, surprise, surprise, when they don't drink poisoned water. Unfortunately, what we found is that many municipalities don't want to know. They don't do terribly sensitive tests to find out if there is lead in drinking water because it's a can of worms, right? They're going to have to spend money. And we have this very short-term way of looking at public spending in this country. You know, you don't want to be the guy who made the mill rate go up, even if it's going to save kids down the road. We're doing a terrible job on leaden children. We can do better. Lansing, to go back to that earlier example, because they systematically replaced the pipes, they got really good at doing it. They found efficiencies in ways of doing it. And they saved a lot of money. And they actually are willing to share with other communities their methods. So it can be better. We just kind of have to pull up our socks and do it. 
want to give you an assist here on the number you were looking for. I'm just quoting you back to you. The U.S. would save $17 for every dollar it invested in lead abatement through reduced costs in healthcare, special education, the criminal justice system, and more. If people don't know this, there are concrete links between lead poisoning and levels of violence in addition to other things. And we'll get to this towards the end of our talk about why America seems to be so bad at preempting things domestically, even if we're really great at preempting things in foreign wars. But I did want to throw that out there. Now, I think this transitions us to food, which is another just (laughs) devastating chapter here. So let's talk about Dr. Deborah Frank-Joanne. She's a pediatrician and director of the Grow Clinic for Children at Boston Medical Center. You feature her in your book. She talks about what is often colloquially called FTT. This stands for failure to thrive. But as Dr. Frank notes, quote, what we call failure to thrive, the rest of the world calls malnutrition, end quote. So... Can you talk a little bit more, Joanne, about failure to thrive, how many children it affects here in the United States, and why it's such a big problem? Sure. The issue with failure to thrive is that we know that children don't have adequate nutrition available to them, which is why we have programs like WIC and SNAP. WIC, which is a subsidy that goes to pregnant and nursing women and children up to five, and SNAP is what we used to call food stamps. But those programs don't cover the full cost of what is needed. So we create programs that don't give people enough money to feed their children for the full month. It comes back to what you were just saying before. We know that we are creating a situation where children are going to have failure to thrive. And what Dr. Frank shared was that most of the families she spoke to, and we we found this across the board, know that their children are not getting enough. And they don't have the way to pay to have their children get adequate nutrition. It's this incredibly complicated world that we've established that says, we know children need this much. We know you don't have enough to buy it for them. So we're going to give you two thirds of what it costs. And you know, it's a little bit better, but it's not everything. And so, you know, failure to thrive is extremely dangerous. It impacts brain development. We all know that the brain develops the most in the first three years of life. And so if you're not getting adequate nutrition during those first few years, you're going to have deficits as you continue to grow. And again, the costs go into things like special ed, prisons, all sorts of medical costs. But we are so averse as a country to looking at what might be good in the future. You know, we really look at this moment in time. And so I think that that is a major, major part of why we're so accepting of the fact that there are kids in, you know, that's in Boston, right? In Boston, Massachusetts, who are malnourished. And I feel like if George Carlin were still with us today, he could probably do a whole 10 minute set on why we call it failure to thrive rather than starving. Mm-hmm. I just It's just a strange euphemism to use. If I were to hear the phrase failure to thrive outside of the contents of this book, 
I would assume that like maybe someone wasn't really excelling at basketball or painting or something. I wouldn't imagine that failure to thrive meant that a child was being malnourished day after day after day. This is sort of a side question here, but why did we coin this term this way? Why are we hiding what is actually really an atrocity behind a phrase like this? Did the two of you figure this out while you were writing and researching this book? I don't think that we did, but I certainly believe, and Colleen, you can tell me if you do, but I think the reason that we did is because we like to use euphemisms. You know, as a country, the fact that we don't call things what they are is what allows us to be okay with it. So if it's failure to thrive, you're blaming the parent. And that is a lot of what comes up, and we do talk about that in the book. It's this assumption that the parent isn't getting you what you need, as opposed to that the parent doesn't have access to what you need. One of the other things we saw with failure to thrive and sort of children in this area was when families have substandard housing, there's also an issue with child development when kids aren't able to be on the floor, when either there isn't room for crawling or it isn't safe because of bugs and rodents and things like that. So I think it really is just sort of like our ability to walk past a homeless person. I think that's why we call it failure to thrive. Yeah, failure to thrive. Sounds like a romantic comedy starring Matthew McConaughey, not a (laughs) dire emergency. You know, one thing that I, I really like about this book is that the two of you speak much more plainly. You don't hide behind euphemisms. You you cut right through it. So let's talk about how many children in America, to use a metaphor that the two of you use in this book, are being held underwater every day. Young brains that are being starved of oxygen because their bodies are deficient in iron. To quote the book, quote, one in four U.S. Americans one years old are not getting enough iron. The odds of suffering from iron deficiency anemia, otherwise known as IDA, a dangerous condition that impedes brain development, increase significantly when a family lives with food insecurity. When blood is low in iron, it cannot transport oxygen efficiently to the brain, end quote. I touched on this a little bit earlier, the intersection of water and food and how these two things kind of compound on each other for children in poverty. You go on to note that IDA also makes children more susceptible to lead poisoning by making the gastrointestinal tract absorb more heavy metal. So Colleen, why is IDA a crisis that we should truly care about? And what are the long-term effects of this condition for individual children and the nation at large? So again, it's very much like lead in water. It's affecting brain development. And you don't get a second shot at brain development. All the things that we spend on because of lead that we talked about, special education, increased healthcare costs, increased costs in the criminal legal system, Those will all come out when we have denied a child iron in his earliest days of development. There's no reason that this has to be true. I mean, we could just distribute iron-rich cereals to young children and make sure that nursing moms get a rich enough diet so that breast milk is doing the job it needs to do and or Make sure that people who are using formula have an adequate supply of formula. You know, we think of it as a third world thing to stretch formula with water, but it's not a third world thing. It happens here too for people who just can't 
buy enough. Joanne said something the other day that really reverberated with me. You know, there are stories about people stealing formula from grocery stores and drug stores. And now formula is frequently locked up behind a cabinet. Isn't that shameful that we know that parents are risking their freedom to get formula for their kids in this country, and that's not leading to dramatic, dramatic action? You know, you look at WIC every budget session, some idiot wants to cut it, and it's always a fight. But Colleen, it did move to change. It changed people to lock the cabinets. That was the change. Yeah, that was not a good response. And like so many things, and it's another recurring theme in this book, is that just as a nation, we're not trying to get ahead of these problems, but in fact, putting the onus on people at the very end of the chain to react. It's just a recurring theme over and over again. In the next section of chapter two, you discuss how food insecurity is especially traumatic for young children. You talk about anti-hunger advocate Rachie Weisberg, and they reference the famous You're Not You When You're Hungry Snickers commercials in which ordinary people are replaced with celebrities like Betty White or Robin Williams to show how hunger can change how a person behaves, how they become someone else. And it's played for laughs. I imagine everyone who is listening to this right now has seen at least one of these commercials. I mean, it's a commercial for a candy bar. They can have a little bit of fun. But we're all familiar with hanger, you know, quote unquote. It's a big meme on Instagram. The irritability we feel when we're hungry. But being, quote, hangry, is a meme that usually references things like, oh, eating dinner an hour late, you know, or like missing breakfast on your way to work. But there are millions of children experience a kind of hanger that can last all day, all week, all year. So to either one of you, how is this affecting children's ability to learn, to behave, to focus, and regulate their emotions? Well, our brains don't work good when they're traumatized. And poverty is a trauma. You know, you're in a life-threatening situation when you don't have enough food. And there are children all over the country in that situation right now. One of the hardest parts of being poor is the chronic stress that goes along with it. And Joanne is actually participating in research that looks at that stress, particularly with new mothers. We make it hard for people to develop in a healthy way when we flood their brains with stress, which is exactly what hunger does. I would add to that, if you look at the school lunch debate in the United States, it's another indication of how we've managed to convince ourselves that children not having adequate food is okay. Right. If a school system is willing to send to collections school lunch debt, it's an indication that we don't see food as essential for children. It's another one of these things that's really pretty crazy because, of course, kids can't learn when they're hungry. And we shouldn't need studies to show us that because we all know it. Yes, it's incredibly hard for me to focus and do the work that I need to do when I'm hungry, when I've missed a meal or two. I'm a grown-ass man, (laughs) you know? I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I don't want to hold it against you, but the two of you made me cry quite a bit reading this darn book. It's like reading the stories 
of children who are innocent. When you think of a child who was just brought into a world, into a situation like this, and they're going to bed hungry because they haven't eaten regularly, it's really heartbreaking. I do want to give you, Joanne or Colleen, an opportunity to answer a question that might be lingering in the back of some listeners' minds. And I think it's good to address it. So the childhood obesity rate in America in 2020 was about 22.4%, which is up from 19.3% in 2019. And obesity is highest in low-income groups. So to put the question somewhat bluntly, Joanne, how can a child be malnourished and overweight at the same time? There are a few answers to that. And I always, you know, start by saying I'm a social worker, not a physician. But, you know, the way that it happens is because the way that people who don't have enough money for all of the food that they need manage usually is to buy higher calorie, less nutrient dense food. It fills them up more, it costs less. And so if you look at the food that people are eating, and you know, one thing to keep in mind when it comes to the foods that people are buying is that in many areas, there isn't access to fresh food. There aren't stores that sell anything except, you know, again, this calorie-dense, nutrient-less food. So you know, that's one big part of it. But another big part of it has to do with the safety of our neighborhoods and the ability to move around freely. You know, in many, many communities, particularly urban communities, there are kids who don't go outside. They don't go outside to play. They only go outside to go to school and to come home. And it's because their neighborhoods aren't safe. So we talk about the importance of physical activity, but so many communities in the United States aren't safe for children to be outside alone, not even alone, aren't safe to be outside. So that is another really significant reason. You know, to add to that is that the story that Colleen told earlier about, you know, families in New London, Connecticut, when you're eating, when your only option is fast food, speaking from experience, you gain weight, right? It's not a low-calorie lifestyle. And also, earlier we talked about this poverty of time. Exercising takes time. So I think that you put all of those things together, and it's really not surprising that there is so much obesity. I want to circle back, before we get to the final questions of the episode, I do want to circle back to iron deficiency and how it affects young brains. Because while I was preparing for our talk, you know, I was looking at what different public schools were doing and the lunches they were serving. And as you write in the book, the biggest sources of iron are leafy greens and meat. When I was researching the New York City public schools, which serve over 1 million children, they now dedicate two days of every school week to vegetarian meals. So there's a meatless Mondays and vegan Fridays, which means that children who are experiencing poverty could be potentially doing a four-day weekend without sufficient iron. I want to go on the record here. I love vegan food. You know, I'm a huge fan of Impossible Burgers, Beyond Meat, and so on. And I know that cattle farming has an impact on our climate that we need to address. But in just terms of immediately serving the children who are most in need here and have developing bodies and brains, 
I understand if you don't want to go on the record about how New York City is running its public schools, but it, it seems like these initiatives that are headed by cities like New York, however well-intentioned they might be, it doesn't seem like they're necessarily the right thing for children who are experiencing malnourishment on a daily basis. It just seems like having a meatless Mondays when kids who are four, five, six, seven years old need as much iron and nutrients as possible, it seems misguided to me and almost like a champagne wish on top of what is a real hardcore need for children. You know, I think it's interesting because you have brought up all of these issues that are so central to how our political system works, which is that poor people, people with less money, have less political capital. And so, of course, veganism and vegetarianism is very popular right now, especially among wealthier people. And so it's not surprising in a city like New York, and I don't know anything more about what they're doing than what you've told us, but you know that in a city like New York, that that particular lobby would have significant strength, whereas the families who might want their children to be able to have meat every day are not the families who have that political capital. Yeah, I mean, I would hope that those vegan meals are feature spinach prominently. I mean, there are ways that it could work. And I think it goes to one of the problems with children's nutrition. It only works if they actually eat it. We talked with chefs who work across the country, and it's very hard to live up to nutritional guidelines and hire staff and get a meal before a kid that they're going to want to eat for less than $2 a piece, which is what they're working on. We don't fund enough for there to be a lot of options. We don't fund enough for people to be really responsive to the kids' taste. And we know that children who are genuinely hungry will turn down food that does not appeal to them. It's the difference between me and children. And to circle back really quickly to something that you said, Joanne, this disconnect between the people who are setting the rules and the people who have so little political power. And I just want to put this on the record so we have it. The Thrifty Food Plan, which was a monthly diet developed by the USDA upon which SNAP benefits are calculated, is like way off. And you detail in the book about how it seems like it was something that was completely developed by academics living in a lab who'd never actually experienced what they were trying to alleviate. And this, again, is a recurring theme in the book, the disconnect between the people who are setting these policies and the people who are actually living through them. The second to last question is this. I want to put this to you to be a, what I guess you could say, a spokesperson for people who might be in the center or on the right who are listening to this podcast. In chapter 14, you focus on solutions and a possibility of a United States without poverty. You spend a lot of time debunking myths around direct cash transfers, how they don't encourage impulse spending, and how they don't discourage work. But I imagine a question that many listeners might have is, what would the total cost of eliminating poverty be? As an example, when it comes to Medicare for All, during the last election, PolitiFact says that according to independent assessments by nonpartisan groups, the total cost of a single-payer Medicare for All system would be about $34 trillion over 10 years, right? So in contrast, current estimates put the total 10-year federal budget at about $45 trillion. So Medicare for All would take up about 75% of that, right? Medicare for All is something that we need. I think we need a strong, robust healthcare system. 
But eliminating poverty includes a host of other expenses, right, that you lay out in painstaking and heartbreaking detail in the book on top of healthcare costs, food, housing, transportation, hygiene, and more. So I don't want to invoke that tired, too often used, you know, as a conversation destroying question, how are we going to pay for it? But I would say if we want to attract the great middle in this country and change people's minds and even pull over some people from the right who care about eliminating poverty, how do we pay for it? I think one place to start just in understanding is that right now, and Colleen, correct me if I'm wrong, the U.S., about 9% of our budget of what we spend every year is on social safety net. That includes temporary assistance for needy families, which is what we used to call welfare, SNAP benefits, you know, all sorts of things. They're all included in that. So it's less than 10% of our budget. Can we end it in one year for nothing? No. But with what just happened with their fully refundable child tax credit, it lifted 40% of children out of poverty. That is an enormous number. And I don't know what the price tag on that was. Do you, Colleen? But it did. It lifted 40% of the kids out. So we did it, and it didn't break the bank. Yes, and to yes and you here, and I think this has been a theme throughout the conversation, is addressing something early is cheaper than addressing it later. If someone gets a cut on their arm and you address it immediately, it's maybe a Band-Aid or you know some gauze, a quick trip to the doctor. If you let that wound bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed, <laughs> it's going to be a lot more expensive later. You go on in detail in the book to talk about how we could really bring down our healthcare costs, all that money that we spend on healthcare costs in this country, we could drastically cut that. If we address at the root what is causing so many people to be sick, which again, you go into great detail in the book. So I just wanted to say that. So for the final question that I'm going to put to both of you, as I mentioned at the start of this conversation, the enormity of the tragedies taking place in America, which again, is the wealthiest country. <laughs> on planet Earth, on a daily basis, is devastating. Americans, to their credit, and I think this needs to be said, when given the chance, are generous via direct action campaigns. You know, when people see a heartbreaking story like a viral video of a woman walking 10 miles to work each day, they readily donate $50,000 on a GoFundMe to buy her a truck and rent for a new apartment. But this isn't sustainable when the problem is systemic and involves millions of people at or below the poverty line. So, when it comes to addressing the very real needs of so many Americans living among us today, and again, to our listeners, we have just barely scratched the surface of this book. People who are thirsty, who are hungry, who are cold and desperate, Joanne, Colleen, what can we do and where do we go next? I think there are a couple answers to that. Yes, U.S. Americans are really generous in a lot of ways. And one of the things at the National Diaper Bank Network that we talk about a lot and also separately that I think we talk about in the book, is that ending poverty, it's a three-legged stool, right? Through charity, like the National Diaper Bank Network. We have great philanthropic support. We have great corporate support. But we need that third leg of the government, the only entity large enough to address this problem is the United States government. Certainly, there are so many really wonderful charities doing work in every area that we talk about in the book. 
health, water, hygiene, you know, and certainly if you wanted, we would be more than happy to, you know, get you the names of some of those organizations. But I think that if we want to make this change, if we want to end poverty, you've got to advocate, you've got to get out there and talk about it. And I would add that for government to step up and do more, it needs to do two things. It needs to stop giving corporate welfare. You know, not too far from you, Anaheim built a huge parking garage for Disneyland that it rents to them for a dollar a year. That's preposterous. (laughs) And the other half of that is we need to reestablish a tax code that makes sense, that takes fairly from the wealthiest of us. And I'm not talking about socialism. I'm not talking about, you know, reducing Bill Gates to selling pencils on the corner. I'm talking about going back to what things were like when Eisenhower or Nixon were president. The rich really don't pay their fair share into an economy that benefits them tremendously. As we're wrapping up here, I'm going to say to you, Colleen and Joanne, something that I don't think I've ever said to anyone ever before, which is thank you for the terrible time. (laughs) This book, as I said, is filled with so many heartbreaking stories. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I thought I'd get through the whole episode without it, but it's, it's a lot. The book is a lot, but it is also filled with hope and solutions. And I want to thank you both for the hard work that it was to put this book together and for the work that the two of you do advocating for those in need, for those who don't have a voice, for people who don't have the largesse of a Nestle or a Disney and can't buy an unlimited supply of water for $5,000 or a parking lot for a dollar a year. So I want to say thank you to both of you. And I would say this to the listener, which is wherever you are on the political spectrum, whatever you think the solution might be, If you read this book, you are not going to come away thinking that everything is okay. Whatever the solution you might have in your mind, you are going to read this book and understand that our country in so many ways is gravely broken and that the person who needs the most help is not getting it. And the person who needs the least is getting way too much. So Joanne and Colleen, thank you again for your time. And thank you so much for putting this book together. And thank you for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having us. And also for really the very, very thoughtful and really a deep conversation and questions. We really appreciate that. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Tune in March 29th for a conversation with political cartoonist Barry Deutsch. Thank you for listening. And wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too.